Welcome back to The Drop. This is Michael Saramella here with a special Pipeline Pro edition. Stacy is about to join me and we're going to talk about all the strange things that happened this week. It was a really interesting event. Um, I don't know. The waves didn't really become what we wanted them to, but it, it led to a lot of moments that made this event really special in its own way. A few records were broken, I will say that. So yeah, without further ado, let's drop in. Congratulations, Mikey. You are the Billabong Pro Pipeline Champion, $898 richer, US, mind you, which is about five grand Australian. Well done. Oh, thank you, Stacey. I thought we were going to get to that at the end, but you brought it straight up to the front. I really appreciate that. What a strange event that was. Okay, it was a weird event. I'll give you that. The waves certainly weren't great, especially for the women who never really got to surf in any decent conditions, but... A lot of interesting things happen, I think, at least. So, I mean, like, first and foremost, you look at this event as a whole. So you have last year's world title winner currently sitting last place in the CT rankings. You have three of the men's top five from last year in 17th place. And the entire event was won with a seven-point heat total. So I don't know. There were a lot of, like, little things that, that made it... A really interesting event as a whole, despite the overall sort of mediocrity of the thing. Uh, so, yeah, let's start with Steph, who she just looked a bit lost out there. Like, I don't even want to put too much on her performance because she had two heats where the waves were pretty shit and she looked, you know, out of sorts and whatever. It happens to the best of them. I'm sure she'll bounce back and be fine. Last year, she started off the year not even surfing the first event. And she ended up winning. So, probably not too much to worry about there but i feel bad for the women as i said before like they never got good conditions the guys got the best day by a mile they surfed the entire time the women's quarterfinals i mean we did a story on it and basically a person won a heat that day with the lowest ever heat winning total ever do you think this event sort of was a bit more like the lowest unique bid wins Unique bid meaning what? Like, you know when you go to an auction and it's like lowest unique bidder wins? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, like... It's, <laughs> it's, it's like reverse order. Like, yeah. who, can, who can scrape through with the lowest heat total will probably get spoken about the most rather than like John John who had like 19 out of 20. Like, that was cool and everything. But you kind of expect that from John. But with Betty Lou... We're going to be talking about that heat for probably a lot longer than John getting two nines out five foot backdoor. Well, I want to talk about both. So we'll do Betty Lou first. Betty Lou won her heat with 2.2 points, which as I said, we've literally gone through the archives and as far back as the data goes, that's like online, it's the lowest heat total to ever win a CT heat. And which it sounds kind of like a diss to say that. But remember, they beat someone, so they at least did better than that person. So congratulations, Betty Lou. Um, just in case anybody's wondering, the second lowest heat score to ever win a heat is Jake Marshall in the 2022 Outer Known Tahiti Pro. He had 2.43 points over Callum Robson's 0.97. Third place goes to B. Durbage in the 2015 Pipe Masters, 2.84. Fourth place, Ace Buck in 3.47 in the Pipe Masters. And fifth place, Timmy Ray's 3.9 points in Tahiti. Basically, all of the lowest heat scores that have ever won a heat are at barreling waves, which kind of makes sense when you think about it, because if you're at like a performance wave, anybody in the dying moon, say, if a heat is going to take off and get like a three if they need to, but in a barreling wave, it's kind of hard. So 
um yeah congratulations betty lou she now has an official title under her belt yeah no i think it's um not one that she would be proud of but like you say you only got to win the heat you're in so well done to her and then yeah back to steph your earlier point i'm not really taking too much out of that you know she did look lost but I wouldn't say it's detrimental to anything in, in, in the grand scheme of things other than just a bit of a kick in the shins, really. Um, she had a clip. I know we'll get to this later, but she had some free surf moments out sunset that actually really surprised me. She looked incredible out there. So I don't think she's got too much to worry about moving forward. Yeah. All right. Well, another almost record that was made today. Jack Robinson won the event. Congratulations, Jack. That's not the record. Well, actually, he he almost achieved two records by winning this final. So the first one is the lowest final winning total. And he narrowly missed this one. Michelle Berez won in 2016 with a 7.53. Jack finished with a 9.17. And the other record is the fastest surfer to four wins. And that's not by age. It's by number of CT events surfed. So, Stace, if you had to guess, who are the three surfers ahead of Jack in terms of first to get to four wins? My first thought would be Bobby, but my gut, it's really hard to go past Gabriel. I think he won two two out of his first five events or something like that. So, uh, but then I don't think he won an event for a whole year. Uh, yeah, I don't know, Bobby or Gabe. Incorrect. Sorry. Um, yeah, the Gabby one you'd think, right? Because he was yeah in that first half a year he won two comps, but he didn't get four events till some like thirty events in. Jack did it in twenty four, but. Beating him was Tom Curran, who did it in 13 events, Sean Thompson, who did it in 17, wow. and Mark Richards, who did it in 23. Kelly's not even on the list. That's crazy. So this is like... Holy smokes. What about Steph? Is Are you just going on the men's side? or? Yeah, sorry. That's just on the men's side. I should have clarified. I didn't go through the women's. I'll need to check that out for next time. Or I guess next time we have a woman who wins four events that quickly. Um, but yeah, good on you, Jack. I'd say that's like... You know, at the same point, like stats don't really matter that much, but then they kind of do. Like we've done a lot of studies about, you know, when people win their first world titles and what are some of the indicators of when someone's going to win a world title. And winning a lot of events fast is a huge indicator of somebody who's going to win world titles. So that's looking really, really good for Jack. So is the uh, yellow jersey on his back in the next event, you'd think. Yeah, they're certainly not everything, particularly I think in surfing too, with the big variable of the ocean. But when you're stacking wins up as quick as that and the company that he lives in with who else hold those records, um, yeah, you'd have to think it's pretty uh, pretty good signs for young Jack. The, the really interesting piece, which I might even throw myself in a bit of homework here and chuck it in the show notes, really stepping our pod game up here, Mikey, was the piece that was on the site uh, maybe 12, 18 months ago about when a surfer wins their first world title and their likeness to then win more than one. And that those stats were actually frightening. You know, it's pretty much got to get one done before 24. Otherwise, you, 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 you might get one, if that. So this has got to be Jack's year pretty much because I think he is 24, right? Yeah, but just for that whole crop. You know, we, we talk about him a lot and I do think it is an amazing crop of surfers. Jack, Ethan, Griffin... Um, they really are showing, you know, that they're capable of winning multiple events and, and, and putting up and beating those top guys. You know, they're, they're, they're beating Philippe, they're beating John, they're beating Gabe. But, you know, to do it over a whole year, um, yeah, this year is, is massive according to the stats. 
Yep. And Leo and Kanoa also sort of in that group as well. They haven't won as many events, but they're part of that same generation. And, you know, Leo just made the final. Kanoa, in an interview on the site recently, said this is the first year he's really believed he can win a world title. So we'll see if that comes close to coming to fruition, if not happening. And then one other person who I want to put on that list who hasn't won an event yet, but as far as like number of CT appearances to number of final appearances, Liam O'Brien has been having a crazy run. Like obviously he got hurt last year, so he wasn't able to surf the tour. And now he's back again. He just made the quarters at this event, made me a lot of money along the way. Thank you, Liam. I appreciate that. And it's just, yeah, we both picked Liam as somebody who'd be strong enough this year to make the cut. I hope that that stays true. I hope he keeps going because I really love watching him surf. One thing that I do want to point out, the WSL noted on multiple occasions, because I think that they didn't want this to become a thing at the end of the year, is they're not considering Liam a rookie. So Liam can't win rookie of the year, which I think is fucking bullshit. That's quite fascinating because it was only last year where they had to... You know, it's not often that you have to pull out the rule book on this one because it doesn't happen so often. I think the last time, um, well, the second last time that I can recall this happening was Stewie Kennedy. And and sort of the instances I'm referring to is people like Stewie and people like Baron Mamiya, who, you know, Stewie came on because he was first replacement. He got a third at Snapper and then surfed the whole year. Um he was considered a rookie because it was the number of events, to my knowledge, was seven. You had to surf seven events to be considered a rookie, and that was the kind of the cutoff, which I sort of think was pretty high, but also makes sense. Uh, and uh, the same for Baron. For him to be considered a rookie, he had to surf seven, and that was widely spoken about. Um, I can even recall having that conversation with Eric Logan when he swept me off my feet for five minutes at Bell's Beach last year. I think that it is inconceivable that Liam is not a rookie. He hasn't surfed one CT heat as a full-time member. He got third as a wild card uh, at Rottnest Island, but he's barely surfed seven heats, let alone seven events. That's really, really strange. Really strange. And it feels like one of those things where it's like they, you know, they probably just pulled out the rule book and they were like, look, it says right here, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, I don't know. You guys made the rule book. You can change the rule book using logic. You know, like this situation doesn't make any sense. And of course, winning rookie of the year, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just sort of like, you know, this nice to have. It has massive financial impact. Oh, does it? Oh, I didn't realize that was in contracts. Oh, for sure. If if you're if you're not writing in rookie of the year to there, there's even bonuses for like winning the QS. You know, for instance, say if your deal is um over a calendar year or a say American financial year, um or excuse me, Australian financial year which finishes on June 31. That's kind of halfway through the year, so you can qualify but still be on your last year's money. But if you you know, I can recall working with athletes that have had deals like oh if you win the QE we'll start paying you your CT wage from January 1 not when your next contract rolls over at June 31st or June 30 or whatever it is so yeah it, it has a massive there's so many different layers to it uh, and Rookie of the Year is a huge huge title and uh, something that I would have to think Liam is upset that he's not in contention for because he's he's going to be right up there for sure it makes absolutely no sense. Um, so anyway, that was one small controversy from this event. There were a few more that I want to talk about, two in particular. Um, well, I guess there's a third one. There's the Apple Watch thing, but I think we've given that enough airtime. So now I want to talk about Kayo and Zeke. Did you see this? What did you think of it? 
I only saw it in HTML text format. I didn't actually see it live. Walk me through it. Okay, so it is, you know, they're surfing in an overlapping heat. It's Zeke and Kyle are surfing against one another. And basically this, this swell line pops up. They're both, well, at first, uh, Kyle makes the first move toward it while Zeke is sort of sitting looking out the back. Kyle is inside of Zeke, uh, you know, relative to the beach. And Kyle starts sort of making a motion toward the corner, if there is such a thing on this wave. Uh, once Kyle starts doing that, Zeke then turns and starts paddling in the same direction and essentially paddles into Kyle. So there's a few different ways to look at this. You can look at this like, oh, and by the way, Zeke has priority. So it ends up with basically Kyle kind of trying to get out of the way, but I don't know if Zeke like actually ran into him or like pulled his leash, but for some reason Kyle's board ends up sort of like nose up, like tail sunk underwater. I'm not sure. It didn't really explain exactly what happened, but whatever happened, they basically collided. Zeke looked like he was like trying to paddle for the wave. So about 15 seconds later, like that happens, right? And you don't really know what happened. But about 15 seconds later, Kyle takes off on this right, gets barreled and somehow comes out of this thing that's like a full closeout. Like it wasn't even really a doggy door. He goes through the, the whole lip on his way out. So he's all excited, blah, blah, blah. He's paddling back out. He hears about the interference and he looks back at the judges and he's like throwing his hands up like, what, are you fucking kidding me, blah, blah, blah. He's paddling back out. At that point in the heat, his highest score was a 5.83. His new wave hadn't come in yet. 5.83, when you take away his second score, because it was a priority interference, puts Kyle in second place behind Zeke. So by the time Kyle gets out, he hears that he gets a 7 on that wave. Boom, that pushes him into first, and Zeke is left needing a 3.5. Rest of the heat rolls out. There's like five minutes left. Zeke has priority, just needs a 3.5. Nothing's coming through. Nothing's coming through. 20 seconds left. Zeke takes off on this little right. Pulls in, kind of deep, small wave, pushes through a chandelier, out the doggy door, claims it, kind of a question mark. Um, watching it, I didn't really know if he was going to get the score or not. It seemed on the line. Uh, ends up that he doesn't get the score. Kyle's elated, comes in, gives his post-eat interview, and, well, let's just run it here. Oh, Billy, there was so much drama in that situation. Tell us what's going through your head when you... Here you have an interference and something like that happens and you manage to back it up with an amazing barrel. Yeah, um, it's so hard when that happens. Um, he, he wasn't looking for the wave. He was intentionally trying to put me in interference. Uh, it was so clear that with all these camera angles like we have, I, I really thought the priority judge would have enough understanding of the situation, especially because the wave wasn't rideable in any, any sides. So as you can hear, Kayo clearly thinks that Zeke paddled into him purposefully. Um, it's really hard to tell. We only get one video angle. The quality's not great. The angle's not great and whatever. But what we do have, I guess, is a bit of a history with Zeke. So it makes Kayo's story a little bit more believable. I don't know. Um, it, it's really, really hard to call what someone's intentions are, especially in the heat of the moment like that. But to Kyle's point, I do think that wave was ultimately a closeout. So the question becomes, did Kyle hinder Zeke's scoring potential? That's what the whole entire rule stems around. Did he hinder Zeke's scoring potential? I, ah, fuck, it's really hard to say, but if, if you've got a gun to my head, I'm saying no, he didn't. I'm saying it was a bad call on the WSL standpoint. I understand why they made it. Technically, Kyle did get in Zeke's way, 
but I don't think that you should make that call. It did feel a little bit like either, you could say it either way, either maybe Zeke did try to paddle into him, or if you don't believe that, then the wave was still kind of a closeout, so there wasn't much scoring potential to begin with. So that was sort of the equation. Um, commenters have mixed feelings on it. Everybody seems to have mixed feelings. But at the end of the day, the right person made it out that heat, interference or not. Yeah, that's crazy that uh, he still managed to sneak through on the one wave, um, particularly needing such a small score. But getting back to like whether you call the interference or not, see that little pause that you did before you even made a decision? That's the decision. It's, it's, it's hindrance of scoring potential, yes or no. So if you have to think about it, it's no. And... Uh, yeah, you'll make a good judge one day, Mikey. <laughs> well, the other interesting thing about this story is that the last time that a surfer had won a heat with a priority interference, meaning that their second wave was taken away from them, was in 2019 when Gabriel Medina did it to Kyle Belly at Pipeline. I'm sure you remember that one. It was the topic of much debate, and it spawned a new rule in the WSL rulebook that basically says in the last five minutes, if you intentionally try to block someone um, when you don't have priority, then basically you will be kicked out of the heat. Like you don't even you don't have any scores. You go to zero, zero, zero. So um, yeah, Kyle gets a little bit of comeuppance on that one, and yeah, he's on the right side of history. So well done, Kyle, and congrats again on your semifinal at Pipeline. A great start to the year again. Just remembering that Gabriel Medina Kyle Abelli interference gave me more of a sort of heightened state than that whole event that just ran. (laughs) (laughs) Just the memory of it. That was the most gangster thing I've ever seen. (laughs) True, true. And um, Zeke is also in in that select elite club that has a WSL rule made after them. So Zeke and Gabby are in Mm. fine company there. Um, But let's talk about a high point to get Stacey a little bit more excited John Florence's 10 that wasn't a 10. Is there any way you don't give that a 10? What else does he have to do? The cameraman stopped filming him. Yeah, two cameramen stopped filming him, actually. Um, the Johnny on the spot in front angle didn't keep going. And then the down the line, off the wall, looking into the tube angle, even though the whole wave was in frame, just sort of let him surf out the bottom of it. It's just, <laughs> I was talking about it. We were watching it live and we're all like, oh, he was brave not to follow him. Whoa, he made it. Like, we couldn't believe it. Like, you know, like it made it that much more dramatic. Yeah. And I just, as a amateur filmer myself, there's just no, like, there's no risk to keep filming. Mm-hmm. If you keep filming and they don't make the wave, then they've been annihilated and you pick them up in the whitewash. But if you don't keep filming them and they make it, it's just, I don't know, you're just never going to hear the end of it. Yeah, especially like, and I think that like, this is something we never talk about. We talk about the judges. We talk about the commentary. We talk about the the people in charge. We never talk about the filmers of the WSL, who I think do an amazing job. And that's the reason we don't talk about yeah. them, is because with a filmer, yeah. you, you you would never talk about it unless they did badly, right? Because if they're doing a good mm. job, you're just seeing everything you need to see. And 99.9% of the time, we get that. But that's how special this wave was, that this is the 0.01%. You know, it's like, how are you not going to give that a fucking 10? It was absurd. Like, I just, like, I don't know what was going through their minds. Actually, this morning... Uh, before the final started, Richie Porta came on and gave like an explanation. Also, I don't understand why Richie Porta is explaining what the judges are thinking when he's not even there or like part of the judging as I understand it. But anyway, he said that basically the two people that gave John a 9.8 were more scoring the wave because according to him, there were like bigger, better waves out there that day. And it's like, 
maybe a little bit, but th- this was like still it was a set wave. He got barreled all the way to the channel, non-channel, you know, past Ains. It was, I don't know. It just, it blows my mind. Yeah. No, but I, you're right. We will stop picking on the cameraman and the production team because they do put on a fantastic show. And we will start picking on the judges. And yeah, I mean, like, how many moments in a wave do you need um, to feel like a surfer's not going to make it? Uh, generally, at Pipeline Backdoor, it's probably two. Like, the drop and then the first foam ball and then they're going to make it or they're not going to make it. But that one had like three moments of that or four. It's like, so... I said nope when I was watching it. I said verbally said nope. <sighs> Whatever. 993, move on. And speaking of which, like uh, what he did on that second wave as well, I know everybody like is probably thinking about the air, but to get through that section that like basically clamped at the end of that barrel, yeah. Dude, what percentage of top surfers would get through that? Oh, like that was ridiculous. That thing broke so hard. That was so gnarly. You know, we didn't get to see much of like you know you don't generally it sort of obviously piping back door. You see barrels, you don't get to see many turns. But the bottom turn and how much speed mm. he had coming into that like air reverse looks so good. And then good. he's going downwind on the air. Like it just all of it is so fucking incredible. Yeah. And that's why he's yeah. jumping. I thought they were gonna make up for it. I thought they were gonna give that a ten <laughs> just to kind of like, you know, go, oh, all right. And there would have been like three judges there with twenty points, which would have been kind of funny, but yeah. whatever. And John John also gave a sweet little tip in his post heat interview talking about that second wave when he went through it. And it's something that I I've like I've known for a little while, but it's so hard to implement in the moment. But it's that when you are in a barrel like that and you see either a foam ball in front of you or a chandelier or something that you have to basically like go through whitewater of some capacity, you need to sit on your back foot. You need to get all your weight on your tail. Because what happens most of the time when you run into that whitewater is your nose falls into it at some point and you go flying forward. But it's so hard because when you're in that position in a barrel, you're usually pretty deep and your instinct is to lean forward to go faster. So to have the wherewithal to see that coming and like think to put all your weight on your back foot, like that's just why he's such a master. Like he's a savant. Yeah, definitely. I find tube riding with your back foot on your tail difficult as it is, let alone like when there's a foam ball trying to lift you up. It's so much more responsive. Like even Jack Robbo sort of, doesn't he kind of rides with his back foot up on top of the deck grip not so much on the tail mm. um and i think that yeah. um yeah john's obviously on another planet we don't need to um say that anymore and the other barrel that really sort of freaked me out in this event was gabby's no-hander at back door like that's also just like on such like people have no idea how fucking hard that is i mean he got a 9.3 I think on difficulty, it was probably better than that. I think that was more of a 10. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was more of a 10 than John's wave. Like, that is just off bone. Not even real. On that point, I guess, I mean, Gabby lost early in this event, right? It kind of doesn't feel like it because he had so many good waves and, like, he just was surfing so well. But he got beat by Jack Rabo. Jack went through Gabby, then John in back-to-back heats and then obviously had his semi and then a final. Um, so he went through basically the craziest gauntlet to get the W here. He's on a great one. Um, and yeah, that's those were, I guess, some of the most exciting heats of the entire event. Yeah, definitely. And I think, like we mentioned earlier, you know, Jack's beating these guys and he's beating them consistently. Um, then he had to go through Jow in the semis, which he was, you know, two foot to 20 foot. He looks really, really good out there. So... Yeah, crazy draw, deserved winner, and although the conditions weren't you know iconic, we we do know that like Jack does have everything 
needed to be a pipeline pro winner, uh, even though today looked a little more like off the wall debuff. And on Joao, this this uh, heat might have been a little bit early for you just with the time difference, but his heat today, his quarterfinal against Felipe, it was like he he was one of the first surfers I've ever seen who looked like he had more energy and spark than Felipe. Like he was going so fast, he was in this new CI five eleven, hadn't even stickered it yet, just basically slapped a Volcom sticker on the nose. And was just soaring, like like, and it looks a little erratic still. Like, he, you know, he definitely still has a few kinks to his surfing, but I think it's kind of like nice in a way because a lot of surfers look really similar on tour, and he just looks nothing like anybody. But he's just going so fast and looks like he's having so much fun all the time. It's kind of hard to root against him. Yeah, definitely. And there's certain things that probably you can't tell from the webcast, but like hitting that end section in Hawaii when the wind's like that and even likewise talking about John's air like even just the way he was just smashing the end section and like putting his tail through the lip is actually so hard to do and then not to mention it's like bone dry you saw Jack Robbo like ride up on the reef with you know one inch of water and like yeah Jow just looks locked in and I mean he's pretty much requalified with that third so yeah he, I'm sure he's feeling feeling a million bucks after that event all right, so now on the women's side, we've talked a lot about how they didn't really get the conditions they deserved in this event, so there weren't as many highlights. But Carissa won. Congratulations. Well-deserved. Long time coming. This is her first CT win at Pipeline after two losses in the final in a row. And she's now back in the yellow jersey where she's been really comfortable. But as we saw last year, it doesn't mean anything until the last event. So I'm sure she'll have a great year, but it's just a matter of what she's going to do with it come lowers. Um, any other notes on the women? Anything that stood out to you, Stacey? Any of the, you know, like Katie came in. I think she had a couple moments that were really special. Um, and then Tyler, to me, looked really, really on point as well. Like she was ripping the shit out of it and also getting pretty barreled as well. Yeah, it was a shame that the women did get the real rough end of the stick with that forecast. Um, it's it's almost like a credit to their tour because it's so small and nimble. Um, you know, if there's any half days or any kind of moments, they will chuck the women on. And I I do feel for them. Like they definitely got the, the raw end of the stick there. And I think that, um, yeah, they did the best with what they could do. And it's a, it's a, it's a bummer that, you know, the forecast for the whole event wasn't, wasn't tip top at all. And, I'm sure they'll be hoping for a bit bit of a run at it in the in the events coming up. But yeah, I think something about Tyler is you know you see her in her posting interviews and sometimes she's kind of bu- uh, bubbly and fun and gives you a bit more of what she's up to and and what she's really thinking. And then other times she just goes full eye the tiger, professional athlete and and sort of just gives you flat bat answers time and time again. And I feel like that's when she's the most kind of locked in. And it's I feel like it's kind of it must be, I don't know, like if you're a competitor, you watch that stuff, but that would intimidate me for sure. She looks really, really, really fired up this year. Yeah, I agree. And like I said, I mean, she was like ripping it back door, which isn't easy to do, as you said before, because it's one, there's just a lot of consequence to anything you do. Like any section you hit, you're usually coming down in a place where you don't want to be coming down. And yeah, she's just hitting lips really hard and reading the wave well. So she was my pick to win. Unfortunately, she didn't quite get there. She was close. Um, 
you picked Sally, who, sorry, Tyler took her out early in the event, and then uh, you picked Griff on the men. He had a really rough heat against Leo early on. My male pick was Joao. He went far, but couldn't quite get it done at the end, so hopefully we can do a little bit better at sunset. That event's going to be starting, well, the waiting period starts on Feb 12, but it doesn't look like they're going to kick off until around Feb 16. That's the first time there's any significant swell coming at least according to my forecasting tools. So for now, I think let's let's put a pause on Sunset and do some picks once we get a better idea of the waves that are coming. So maybe we'll reconvene next week. Sounds good. And in the meantime, you can help me read a cyclone forecast that's due to hit the east coast of Australia, which is currently keeping me awake at night. All right, Stacy. thank you as always. And yeah, we'll be back next week with another competition update on Sunset. We're going to do our picks and forecasts and everything you need to know about that event. In the meantime, Buck and I will be back on Friday with a typical episode of The Drop where we talk about this week's surf news, you know, everything that happened outside of competition. So until then, over and out.